Welcome to the Confident Grief Coach Show, a podcast for current and future grief support professionals, featuring advice on how to incorporate the fundamentals of coaching into those tender areas of the grief journey to exploring more advanced techniques to help your clients create lives where their grief coexists with peace, purpose, and joy. Now, get ready to transform the face of grief with your host, best-selling author and founder of Healing Family Grief, Pat Shevland. Hi there, and welcome back to the Confident Grief Coach Show. I'm your host, Pat Shepland. Okay, now that you know the basics of engaging as a grief coach with your clients from our first episode, in this second episode, we are going to dive into some of the secrets I use in creating quick and massive shifts in my client's grief experience. You know, those kind of transformational shifts that have my clients actively participating in life, dramatically improving their physical and emotional health, and taking charge of their lives, being empowered, versus lying in bed with the covers drawn up over their heads, burrowing deeper into their grief. If you've already jumped ahead and listened to all the episodes already, and you think, hey, I'm ready to step into becoming a certified grief coach, Go to healingfamilygrief.com to apply to join our community of confident grief coaches and we'll review your information and get back to you right away. Would love to hear from you. Okay, let's take a look at some of what I see are the key steps for helping create major and positive shifts in the grief journey. I can't go through all of them in deep detail right here. That frankly would take hours and hours and basically that's what my whole certification program is about. And it would be more like an audiobook or an intensive masterclass than a podcast episode. But I'm going to hit the highlights and hopefully you'll find some real diamonds here that you can take forward. A few years ago, I wrote a book that was tailored to grieving moms, which I called How Do I Survive? seven steps to living after child loss. As I was writing the book, the breathe coaching model for grief unfolded very naturally. The acronym breathe came to me because I realized that when we're in deep grief, most of us will find ourselves unable to take a deep breath. We (laughs) inhale and our breath gets stuck. We're unable to exhale. And so this program is all about helping the person who is grieving be able to take a deep breath in and a full exhale out because breath is what we need to live. Each letter of the BREATHE program stands for a step or focal point as someone is journeying in their process of grief through this coaching model. So we're going to just go through them, okay? So the B in breathe stands for being clear, knowing who you are. And so I use assessments for measuring where someone is at. I like to use various assessment tools as this first step. And what I include is a life engagement survey and an emotional barometer assessment. And that's based on the Chinese five element theory of how certain emotions can impact our physical health, which I think is important to understand. 
And then I have them do an assessment based on values. It's called the VIA, be like in Victor. And that is something that I learned a long time ago when I was being trained as a certified coach. And it talks about values and action. And it really helps to determine what are someone's strengths? What are their top strengths? So I use these tools to create a baseline. So when I'm first working with someone, we create the baseline. And then I use them as ongoing measurements to use throughout the program to help my clients assess their progress. So I'm going to be honest here. These are subjective, the emotional barometer and the life engagement survey are ones that are subjective because the fact is it's the client responding to or sharing how they're feeling about certain areas of their life. And But it also shows them changes in their perceptions as they are moving along the BREATHE program and as they're exploring their grief. As I said, I like to do a baseline because it allows you to know your client and will help you to meet your client where he or she is at in their grief experience. I was trained in strength-based coaching and positive psychology. So what we're looking for are what are the person's strengths to help carry them forward versus focusing on areas that they think that they need to fix, quote unquote. I've had so many clients come to me and said, I am not broken and it kind of ticks me off when people talk about me being broken. I am grieving. There's a difference. They'll tell me, you know what? I may have a broken heart, but it does not mean that all of me is broken. I tell them that my job is to help hold them together and not let Humpty Dumpty fall into a bazillion pieces. Because oftentimes that's what someone who is grieving feels like may happen, that they may just crumble. So my job is to help them find a way to hold themselves together in the best way possible. So we do these exercises. And um, as I said, I like to do it when they first come to me. I want a baseline. How are they feeling about various areas of their life? How engaged are they in their spiritual, with their family? How What's their support network like? I have them rate that on a zero to 10 scale, all these things. So that they can see where they're sitting at. And then the emotional barometer is having them rate on a scale of zero to 10. How much are certain emotions like showing up for them on a daily basis? Like anger, overthinking, worry, extreme emotions. I mean, a lot of these are typical in grief. The deep sadness, the crying, fear. These are all emotions that we know can create havoc on our physical bodies in addition to our emotional and psychological selves. So I have them do that. And then about week four, because this is an eight-week program, I have them reevaluate again. And it's very interesting. So for most people, they're starting to see a little bit of change. Their perceptions have changed a little bit. A lot of times for the better, but there have been on occasion where sometimes someone's evaluation, their assessment has actually deteriorated a little bit. And I share with them that I think that is just perfect because they're starting to unwrap their grief. 
They're starting to give their grief air. So when we start doing that, it's like taking off a bandage and giving a wound air. Sometimes it can hurt more than what it had been. So sometimes their feelings about their life engagement and their emotions may deteriorate a little bit in that middle part. But then we get to week eight and I have them do it again. And the results are extraordinary. So I'm just going to share a couple of these with you. I had a widow who on her emotional barometer, when she came to me, she was feeling really sad and stuck and not sure where she was going to go in the future. Within eight weeks, she saw a 14-point improvement in her perception of where those emotions were in her everyday being. She was so much brighter and just felt more confident. I had a woman who experienced the loss of her adult child. When she came to me, the emotions were just off the charts regularly on a daily basis. Within eight weeks, she saw an 18-point improvement. She felt more empowered. I had a widow come to me, again, feeling just so distraught, not sure where to go, and within eight weeks saw a 14-point improvement in her emotional feelings and her strength and her ability to move forward. And then I had a widower, and when he came to me, it had been almost five years since his wife had died. And we did that initial emotional rating. He was feeling pretty crappy, and the emotions were just like heavy on him on a constant basis. And in eight weeks, he saw a shift or perceived a shift in himself. That was a 22-point improvement. So on average, when people come into this BREATHE program, My clients have seen a 24-point improvement on their life engagement overall on average, meaning that all these areas of their life have, they see that it's they're improving, that things are looking good. And overall, there's been a 17-point improvement on the impact negative emotions are having within their, on their life. That's just within eight weeks. So we don't have to have long and drawn out therapeutic models. Shifts can happen very quickly. And that's what I love about coaching is because that's what we want to do is we want to make transformative shifts very quickly. The next step in the breathe model is the R in breathe. And that is reimagining your life. And it's really about looking into the future and doing some goal setting. I use a guided imagery meditation. I call it the canoe ride. And there's a reason why I do guided imagery and it's a meditation type action is number one, I want my client to find a way to relax. Grieving is hard work. It's exhausting. Oftentimes people are not sleeping well. They may have nightmares, lots of different things going on there. They're exhausted. So if they can relax through a guided imagery meditation, my job is done for that session. It also is a good way for them to go back and become a child and do some daydreaming. Do you remember when you used to lay on your back and look up at the stars and wish upon a star or 
watching the clouds, those big fluffy clouds and seeing what animals they were and just kind of use your imagination. That is what I hope for for my clients is to be able to daydream a little bit and see that reality can be morphed into something that may be a little bit more relaxing. And then what ultimately I like them to walk away with is a vision and goals. Now, if you work in corporate settings or anything like that, a lot of times when we're looking at goals or we'll do like um, our vision board for a year, when someone's grieving, I don't have them go a whole year out. That can seem really daunting and overwhelming. So I like them to take a look at how would they like to feel? Where would they like to be? What would they like to accomplish within the next 90 days to possibly six months? So that's what this guided imagery meditation does. And it's really cool because a lot of times people fall asleep when they're listening to my voice. And I think that is super cool because we know that sleep is the deepest form of meditation. A lot of things happen in our sleep time. And if they can get that rest and they need to listen to the meditation several times over, I know my work has been done. It's good. Things are good in this part of the breathe program. So that's what it's about is coming up with goals, things that we can work towards co-create between the client and myself or you and your client. Then the next step of the breathe program is what I call engaging your tribe. And this is creating a support system that's tailor-made for your client. Um, I was reading the book, um, the book of joy and it's a conversations and a meeting between Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu said it is the hard times the painful times the sadness and the grief that knit us more closely together we are social beings and when we hurt some of us may retreat as if we're a wounded animal. Now, he didn't say that. That's what I'm saying is when we are social beings. But he's saying it's during the hard times when we knit together more closely. But I have seen because we are social beings, sometimes we don't become so social when we're grieving. And when we hurt, some of us may retreat as if we're like a wounded animal going to hide out in the woods to lay down in the field and die. But we know as social beings that if we allow others to help us lick our wounds, so to speak, help support us, we can find extraordinary healing and renewed life. This is a critical one because a lot of times when people are grieving, their world gets very small. They don't go out as much. People don't reach out to them as much. So I do have one quote unquote rule. That can be broken if people so choose to do so. But not use family members. Because when you're grieving, the close people in your family are grieving also and they're going through their own journey. So they really could not be as much of a support. I had a client where um, I was asking her to do this exercise of coming up with her tribe. And she came up with her mother-in-law. This was, woman was a widow. And she thought, my mother-in-law is always there for me. She's always really supportive, that type of thing. And when I started asking her, okay, so how would you, you know, use that relationship with your mother-in-law? One of the things when you really need support 
And the client got really, really quiet. And she said, I can't use my mother-in-law. And I said, why is that? And she said, because usually when I need support and it's something going on, it's something about my kids. And my mother-in-law is the grandmother to my kids. That's not going to work. So she had this aha moment and she found someone else as we did a little mini meditation that actually is the perfect fit to be her support, part of her tribe. Sometimes people have resistance in reaching out to others and asking them to be a part of their support network. I had a client one time where she's like, no, no, I don't think I can reach out to anybody. That makes me really uncomfortable. And I'm like, okay, let's just try a good old college try. Humor me, just humor me this one time and just reach out and ask them if they would be willing to be your support while you're going through this grieving process and through this Tell them that, you know, your coach asked you to do this. Okay, she said she was going to go do it. And I said, before she reached out to these people, I said, you know what? I'm going to kind of place a bet here. I bet when you reach out to these two people that you, who have come to mind, that they're going to tell you that they are so honored that they can help you in their in your grieving journey. So off she went. The next week we connected and she's like, oh my gosh, Pat, it was so wonderful. And you know what? They both said they were so honored that I reached out to them, that I would choose them to be my support system. And I'll tell you, the look on this woman's face just did a 180 from the week before. She was engaged. She was excited. She felt loved. And then I asked my clients, once they they figured out who is going to be part of their tribe, that they create a treaty, an agreement with the people who are their support system. So I had a client where she, her daughter, adult daughter had died and this woman had pretty much become a homebody. She didn't want to go out. She was afraid to see people. She was afraid that she may just, you know, someone will say something or look at her or give her a hug and she would just crumble into a bazillion pieces. And so she really didn't like to go out of her house at all. It was so painful so scary. So she reached out to a couple of people who had been good friends of hers for years. And she asked them if they would be part of her support group, her tribe. And they said, absolutely. Absolutely. They want to be a part of their tribe. And what they agreed to is that they would do a group text every Friday. And it was just a check-in. How are you doing? I'm thinking about you. And my client agreed that she would respond, even if it was just an emoji, she would acknowledge that she saw the text and she heard them. That may not seem like a big deal, but for her, it was huge. It was huge. Every Friday, she needed to connect with someone outside of her home. And then gradually, when the weather started getting a little nicer, they actually went for a couple of walks. And then she was able to go to a family event. So it just gradually started giving her the confidence that she could interact with other people without being broken into a bazillion pieces. That's the power of the tribe. The next part of the Breathe program is accessing your inner healer. And um, this is something that I came up with. Uh, I coined a phrase. You'll see that I just love to... Um, 
come up with acronyms. And I came up with this acronym several years ago. The acronym is FAITH. Finding Awesome Inspiration to Heal. So I teach breathing exercises for my clients. And there are lots of different breathing breathing exercises. I just do simple three breaths in and out, slow, deep, gentle breaths, just focusing on the breath, focusing on the exhale. And I do that with them quite regularly so that they learn that sometimes all they have to do is just take a breath and it can calm down all the anxiety that's flowing up within them. I teach Qigong for grief because that's my background and what I've been trained in. But I have had clients who have had great results. They do yoga. They may do meditations and listen to meditations. I had one client who did acupuncture, which really helped to balance her energy. Massage therapy is great. There are modalities like healing touch and Reiki, different things like that. So I encourage my clients to have something like that in their toolbox to help them find some ways to heal. And then in this faith toolbox, I recommend that people come up with 10 things that are simple go-to actions when they're really deep in grief. Like the sobs are starting and they can hardly breathe. And they have these 10 things written down. I have them write them down on a piece of paper that's easily accessible for them. So maybe it's on a mirror, maybe it's on a bedside stand, wherever. And it's just simple things that they know can help them feel better very quickly. And they don't have to think about it because it's written down. So it could be as simple as running a bath and soaking in a nice warm bath. It could be going into the shower and having a nice warm shower. I did that all the time when my mom first died. It just felt so good to be in the shower. I could ball my eyes out in that shower, but it was just like all of that would just like release and just go down the drain. So by the time I got out of the shower, I was much more composed. I felt better. It could be as simple as opening up a window, closing one's eyes, and listening to the chatter of birds or squirrels or whatever it is outside your window, focusing on something externally as you're taking those three soft, deep, gentle breaths. So I encourage my clients to come up with 10 little items that they know seems to work for them, put them on a piece of paper and have them there so that it's easily accessible. So they don't have to think about how do I get myself through this episode? How do I move myself through this? They've already got it there at their fingertips. So that's part of the faith toolbox. And then I teach my clients about gratitude. We know there are so many studies on gratitude, how it helps us physiologically. It can help heart disease, so many different things. But we also know that when we are steeped in gratitude, it shifts hormones, it shifts our thinking patterns and moves us to a place of healing. So I encourage people to do a gratitude exercise every night before they go to bed because right before we go to sleep, those gratitudes, what we're thankful for stays in our brain and it kind of steeps all night long. And studies have shown that doing this type of gratitude exercise over a month period actually increases happiness in people. 
So it's a very little thing to do, but it's very powerful. And then, as I said, when I get to this point, this is when I reevaluate and do a temperature check of the life engagement and the emotional barometer. Because we're about four weeks into it now, and I want to just do a check, see how everything is going, where are people perceiving that they're at during this time. And that's very empowering for them because, as I said, most of the time people have seen some small shifts in their perception of how they're feeling and what's going on in their lives. And that like makes them feel like, wow, I can do this. They can see a tiny little light into the future. And that's what we're looking for when we're dealing with grief. The next is the T, transforming your view. This is about reframing stories when one is feeling a bit stuck. Oftentimes, there may be stories that we have and we need to change those perceptions. So it's reframing it. And that's a big coaching tool that we use. I had a client, um, a dad that he was a widower raising his two teenage daughters. And every time we met, he was like so down on himself and just didn't, you know, he's always like beating himself up that he didn't get this done or he didn't get that done. Could have done something different. So I said, you know what? Why don't we do a little exercise? Are you open to that? Okay. I said, why don't you take a look every night before you go to bed and just think about your day and just rate the day on whether it was a one-star day. He came up with a star system. Was it a one-star day? Like, I didn't get anything done. It really sucked. Or a four-star day. You know what? I really got a lot done and I'm feeling really good about how the day went. I said, let's do this for the next week or two and check in and see how things are and what shows up there for you. So he started doing the star system and rating every night. And do you know that he never had a one-star day? He never had a two-star day. His stars, every night before he went to bed, were either a three- or four-star day. And he realized, wow, I have much better days than what I thought I was having. Total shift in perception. There also may be times that we have some feelings of abandonment when we're grieving. We may have felt harmed by other people. Maybe they've said things or done things that we felt were unkind. And so I do work with my clients about doing some, what I call exercises of forgiveness and reframing some of that. So I use what's called the Ho'oponopono, which is an ancient Hawaiian healing technique. It's a mantra, which basically means to make right. And it's a very simple mantra. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. Now I want to tell you a quick story about this and how powerful it was. My mom was in her 80s when she finally started talking to me about the death of our, my brother that happened before I was born. It was something that was never talked about in our family. There was no mention of Greg. There was, it was like he just, he was buried along with his little body 60 years prior. And when he would have turned 60, my mom finally opened up and she was what I, who I consider like my first coaching client, my first grief coaching client, because I, I just worked with her on how to unveil all of the emotions that she had buried for so many years. 
And it happened to be that we had done a lot of conversation talking about that, but she held some stories in her mind, some bitterness, some abandonment, some anger at my father, at her family that she didn't feel were around when Greg died, different things like that. And it was a Sunday and it was Father's Day, which also would have been my brother's birthday. And I said, Mom, why don't we go to the cemetery and put some roses on for Father's Day? We used to, you know, put flags out, roses and that type of thing. And let's just go to the cemetery. And I knew that it was important for us to go to the cemetery. And we got to my grandparents' grave. And I remember her talking about how no one was around for her after Greg died. She felt totally abandoned, like no one was there to support her. And I kept thinking about my grandparents. So we were standing over my grandparents' grave. And I thought, you know, I'm going to try the Ho'oponopono. Now, my mom was a stoic little German woman. We didn't talk about things like this whatsoever. We didn't go into the touchy-feely stuff, but she always thought I was a little bit strange because I had beliefs that I shared openly in spirituality. But I said, Mom, can I do something? Can I, can I say something here? She looks at me, you know, she was in her late 80s, almost 90 years old, this little lady looking up at me and she said, okay. So I took her hands, which I would have never done. And I was shaking in my boots. I tell you, this was not something I wanted to um, just automatically do, but I knew it was so important. And I held her hands and I looked in her eyes and I said, I am sorry. She's like, what are you sorry for? You didn't do anything. And I said, Mom, I'm going to be asking for forgiveness on behalf of all the people who you felt had abandoned you or harmed you over the years, and especially when Greg died. Can I do that for you? She said, oh, okay. So I started again. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And she looked up at me and she said, okay, I do. And then I said to her, thank you. I love you. That was it. We didn't hug. We didn't cry. It was just like, okay, that was that. Well, we moved from my grandparents' grave and we went over to my father's grave and next to him was my brother's gravestone. And we laid flowers there and my mom opened up about what it felt like to be at the cemetery the day they buried my brother. She was able to just bring it all up. And then we went home and we didn't talk about it the rest of the day. No, it was like a done deal. But the next morning... I was leaving to go on a work trip and she was living with us at the time. And there was a birthday card for me because it was my birthday that day. And inside the birthday card, in her little tiny handwriting, shaky handwriting, she had a note saying, I thank Harold, which was my father's name, and God for giving me a daughter like you. My mom would have never said that to me ever. In all the 50 years we were together, that was not something that she would have ever felt comfortable to do. And I believe the whole Pono Pono shifted and transformed and made things right for her. So very simple. There's also a Buddhist prayer of forgiveness that I really love. You can look it up on the internet. Um, it's just a beautiful little prayer where it's asking for forgiveness if I've harmed anybody either intentionally or unintentionally through my own confusions. I ask for forgiveness. 
or if someone has harmed me, either intentionally or unintentionally through their own confusions, that I forgive them. And then there's this great little piece in there. If I'm not ready to forgive, I forgive myself for that. So it's a beautiful prayer of forgiveness that gives permission to be where you're at. And that's a really been a really powerful one for someone like grieving um, clients. I also have gifted clients a book called Little Soul in the Sun by Neil Donald Walsh because they may be holding such anger and judgment against another person and feeling so betrayed and harmed by them. And this is a beautiful little children's story that talks about when people come into our lives that may cause us harm and negative relationships. And that's been really powerful for clients. So there's lots of different things that you can do to help your clients to do in reframing. And that's one of the big things is getting them to shift and maybe see things through a different lens. And then we go into H, which is honoring practices. And it is very, very important that we do some kind of ceremony and provide the ability to honor our loved one who has died, but also to honor our own grief. And there's lots of different ways and and different cultures will do it differently. Um, I am a certified celebrant and during the pandemic, um, it it took about two months before um, some friends and a family could do their service for their dad and they asked me to officiate. And so it had been about two months since he had died. And after we did the ceremony, several of the children came up to me and said, thank you so much, Pat. I didn't realize that I hadn't even started grieving his death yet. It took having this ceremony gathering together for me to finally be able to realize that I really miss him and I am grieving. Wow, that's pretty powerful stuff. Um, I have some friends that uh, they own a nail salon and they're Vietnamese. And I asked them, what do you do? You know, what are, what's your belief when a loved one dies? And they're like, oh, we set a table for them. We set a place at the dinner table for them every day. And I'm like, really? Yeah, yeah. They're there. So we're just setting the table for them. So they always have a, a place setting there. We have a chair for them. And then they have a very specific way of their mourning period. They light incense. They do it every day. Then it goes to every week. Then it'll go to once a month. And, you know, so they have certain time periods where they just do their reflections and their honoring of the person who died. And then I asked him, I said, what do you believe happens when someone dies? Because I was just curious through their perception. And they pointed right next to the daughter pointed right next to her and said, oh, she's right here. Grandma's right here. She's right here. That's why we always set the place at the table. So there are some powerful um, ceremonies and that ability to believe that your loved one still is with you is so super important. And then also, I just wanted to share my husband um, comes from an indigenous tribal background here in the U.S. And when um, our 18-year-old nephew died unexpectedly, they did the whole um, native wake 
and ceremony of wiping of the tears. And it was 24-7 where he laid in state in the teepee and he was never left alone. His body was never left alone. And we could spend so much time being with him and with each other's family and the whole community, the whole tribal community came together and the drummers would come every night and drum. And you just never left Coleman's body alone. And you could just go in and sit and reflect and just be. And then on the fourth day, they had wiping of the tears ceremony where everybody gathered in the school gymnasium. They had our family sitting in the middle of the floor and they did the wiping of the tears ceremony. And then everybody came off of the bleachers and one by one came and bowed down in front of each one of us in honor. And I'll tell you, that was a pretty powerful way to begin that grieving process because we allowed ourselves to be immersed in it. And that was so important. The other thing that I teach my clients is to consciously connect with their loved ones. So I have them write letters to their loved ones. I have them journal, ask questions to their loved ones in journaling. I have them talk. I have... A friend of mine died maybe 10 years ago and her daughter was really, really struggling. Her daughter was an adult, but she was really struggling because her mom and her were best friends. And finally, I said, you know, what I'd like you to try to do is the next time you're in the kitchen baking something, why don't you just have a conversation with your mom? Just start talking to her. Just start talking. And so she started doing that. It was amazing how quickly her deep grief transformed and how she feels that her mom is so closely next to her. And it's pretty amazing because this woman, the daughter, had recently um, contracted COVID and ended up in um, intensive care on a ventilator. She's in her 30s. And I just knew that her mom was right there. And I would send her text messages telling her that her mom was right there and to just hand over her illness to her mother. And she said after she got off the vent and for a couple of nights that were really, really scary nights, she said, my mom was with me always right there. She was right there with me and I could feel her and see her. That's the power. That's the power of connecting with our loved ones. So I encourage people to look for signs. Some people say, oh, that's all hokey pokey. That's not true. Who cares? If you believe it, it makes you feel better, cool. Who cares then, right? My mom comes at 11.11. I get clocks where all of a sudden I'll look at a clock or my watch and it's 11.11. Doesn't matter where the clock is. It could be the microwave. It could be somewhere else. It's not necessarily on a phone. It's, it's not like everything is synchronized, but she'll show up at 11.11. My eyes will be drawn to that, even though I might be totally immersed in something else that I'm thinking about at the time. I believe my mom died at 11.11 that night because that was about the time that I went into her room. For me, that brings me joy. It brings me a connection. And that's how it helps. I know that once we can interact with our loved ones and realize that death is not forever, that's when healing will show up. And then finally, I want to talk about in this episode, the E in the breathe method. And this is embracing hope. And hope is, yep, another acronym, honoring our purpose every day. 
This is where we move from our internal focus of how awful we feel to our external focus, how we can help others, how we can share our experience for long-term healing. So I mentioned that book of joy and the Dalai Lama had said in that book of joy that I was talking about, sadness and grief are, of course, natural human responses to loss. But if you focus, if your focus remains on the love, the loved one you have just lost, the experience is less likely to lead to despair. In contrast, if your focus while grieving remains mostly on yourself, like what am I going to do? How am I going to cope? Then there's a greater danger of going down the path of despair and depression. He went on to say regarding the subject, the way through the sadness and grief that comes from great loss is to use it as motivation and to generate a deeper sense of purpose. And this I know is so very true. When my clients come to me, they're usually saying, I don't know what I'm going to do in my life now. I don't know what my purpose is, especially grieving parents. And once they can move from the deep grief and the grief coma and start looking at externally how they can help someone else, it's like their healing just shifts dramatically. I have a client who came to me. Her husband had died and she was struggling. It had been almost two years. And she went through the BREATHE program. And by the time she was done with the BREATHE program, she's like, I would like to be a grief coach. And so she just graduated as a certified grief coach because she knew that she could help others because she had experienced the massive shift in herself. And that's what she wanted to do. I have a friend whose son died um, when he was 21, an army ranger over in Afghanistan. It was her one and only child. She was a single parent. And that could definitely throw us into the deep depths of grief. But she said, you know, she never got angry. What she did is she moved forward and she honors her son every single day. She works with the military. She has created a nonprofit to... um provide funding for various military and veteran groups. She does support groups. She works um, in an organization that provides grief support groups for family members of the military who have died. Her whole life over these last almost 13 years has been devoted to helping others. And that's how she continues to move forward and have a life that's worth getting out of bed for every day. I have a couple that came to me a few years ago and their son died by suicide. He had had some illnesses and um, ended up one day, I believe, just having some great confusion and ended up dying by suicide. And it was so tragic. They, there were no warning signs. It was just absolutely devastating for this couple. But they said, you know, when this happened, they sat down with each other and looked at each other and said, we cannot let this define us and take away any joy we may have for the remainder of our life. We have a long life ahead. We have another child. We have other family members. We cannot let his legacy be that. So what they have decided is that they do random acts of kindness. They are thoughtful 
and think about how they can do random acts of kindness. And when they're looking for gifts, they ask people to please do a random act of kindness to someone else. That's how they, that's their purpose in life. And then I have a dad who, um, his son died from a drug overdose. And he's a quiet, soft-spoken man, but he does these eloquent posts on Facebook on the day of the month that his son died. And it's been almost two years or maybe a little over two years. But he also gets out and he speaks to schools. He speaks to um, sports programs, high school programs to talk about the opioid addiction and his family's story, hoping that as he shares their story, it may impact even just one family from going through what they went through. Hope, honoring our purpose every day. Okay, Phew. I know I've given you a lot of information here, but you know what? That's kind of my goal. I want to give you lots of information to ponder and some tried and true thoughts on how you might be able to help your friends, your family, your clients, and people in your community who are raising their hands for help. If you like what you've heard here on this podcast, please don't hesitate to like the podcast or give a review wherever you're listening to this. And if you'd like me to talk about any specific topics in the future, I'd love to hear from you. I'm always looking for more content. Now, if you've jumped ahead and you've listened to the other recordings of this mini podcast about becoming a confident grief coach, and you believe that you're ready to step into becoming a certified grief coach and be able to be a facilitator of our Breathe Coaching Model for Grief program, go to healingfamilygrief.com and apply, and we'll review your information right away and get back to you, okay? All right, keep an eye out for the third episode of this four-part mini-series of Becoming a Confident Grief Coach, where we will talk more about how do you take this out into your world? What does that look like? Okay, see you later. Much love and peace out. This has been another episode of the Confident Grief Coach Show, where we help life coaches and other helping professionals become more self-assured as a transformative grief support in their work and communities. If you like the show today, be sure to tell a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget to sign up for our mailing list at healingfamilygrief.com, where you can learn more about how to join our community as a certified grief coach.